Welcome to the Catholic Leaders Podcast, where we talk with inspirational leaders and explore how faith informs leadership. I'm Carrie Robinson. And I'm Kim Smolik. We're executive partners at Leadership Roundtable, a ministry of hope for the church, founded to promote best practices in leadership and management. We're so excited to have you join us today. So click the subscribe button and let's get started. Kim, it's great to be with you. What a terrific interview with Amy Goldman of the GHR Foundation. I've known Amy for a very long time, but what she revealed in our interview was so illuminating, particularly about the intersection of Catholic philanthropy, the church, Pope Francis, and a commitment to Catholic social teaching. I just loved it. It really reflects Amy, her family, and the work of the foundation, um, both globally and at the Vatican, but particularly in Minneapolis and St. Paul, where I happen to be at this moment and grew up. And I'm just able to see so clearly the presence of their foundation, the impact of it here in the Twin Cities. Um, I actually have been in a number of conversations since I've been here only for two weeks, and twice the GHR Foundation has come up. So I was just really um, pleased to hear about the wonderful work that they're doing here. I was really struck um, by Amy's reflection on what's happening at the Vatican. As you mentioned, she uh, is working closely with Pope Francis as, as a friend and advisor. And when she said during the interview that the reforms at the Vatican are tangible, you can feel it. You can feel the optimism, the excitement, and a more collaborative model of leadership. That really excites me. It's what we're trying to work on here at Leadership Roundtable and what we promote and see in many corners of the church here in the U.S., in our own organization, and as I was mentioning, in how GHR operates here in the Twin Cities. I think our listeners are going to just love this podcast. Welcome back to the Catholic Leaders Podcast. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Amy Goldman to the podcast. Amy Roundhorse Goldman is CEO and chair of GHR Foundation, a hope-fueled global funder of service to people and their limitless potential for good. It is also a Minneapolis, Minnesota-based foundation, which makes this native Minnesotan very proud. Amy has a background in diplomacy and social investment that has inspired new approaches to philanthropy. Under her leadership, GHR elevates powerful movements of faith and interfaith actors for community-led development. It implements systems change strategies across public, private, and faith sectors to keep children in families. It unlocks significant funding from industry and government to prevent Alzheimer's dementia and is launching new collaborations with Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led organizations to address racial inequities. Amy is a member of Opus Holding Board of Directors, Visitation School Board of Trustees, 
Jesuit Refugee Services International Development Group, Mayo Clinic Leadership Council, and Council on Foreign Relations. Amy serves on the board of Georgetown University, her alma mater, and also Carrie's alma mater, and is trustee and vice chair of the board of the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, also my alma mater. Well-selected boards, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm really looking forward to this. Amy, you have such a deep and varied background and have been serving in leadership roles now for many years. Could you tell us a little bit about your leadership path and how your faith supports and informs your leadership? Well, thanks, Carrie. Um, it's, it's such a gift to be able to reflect on that question, particularly with both of you who I admire so much. And when I, when I think about that, um, I think my leadership journey was so um, propelled by my faith. And that's because uh, my, you know, I've been really lucky enough to have incredible um, sort of hardwired experiences in my life for my faith that have meant my leadership journey has become one more of an adventure. Mm -hmm. And and so maybe I'll, I'll just spell that out a little more. I think of my faith has had, um, you know, many, many influences, but the top three have got to be my parents and then the sisters of the visitation where I went to high school and then the Jesuits where I went to college. And with my parents, it was such a foundational part of their lives. They didn't speak it, they lived it. Mm -hmm. And so to grow up in a household of seven children, growing a family business and know that faith was the first thing in their lives, um, was just it was just osmosis that I breathed that in. And, and I don't think until I got to be later in life that I, I just looked back and realized how lucky and I was and how grateful I was for that. And my eighth grade teacher would say, you know, work like everything depends on you and pray like everything depends on God. And that sort of summed up the way my parents lived. And so having that and then going to high school under um, the Sisters of Visitation Salesian spiritual focus on gratitude and humble humble confidence and gentleness and kindness. You know, I, I took that and then went off to Georgetown where the Jesuits have a very, I would say, more robust vision of, of faith and spirituality of go out and set the world on fire. And to think about combining gentleness and kindness with setting the world on fire, I feel very, again, just so lucky that I was able to have these influences in my own faith journey. And also a real, um, a real nudge to say, you got to figure this out. You really have to discern and become who you are. And as the visitation sisters say, be that well. And so that led to my, my journey to leadership to me, feels like, um, uh, a collection of, of happy, lucky, uh, incidents along the way. And I always pursued things that seemed to be of incredible interest and where I was able to discern, can I really contribute? And so I ended up in a place where I don't think I would ever have forecasted. It was not a linear path. And, 
And I would look back on my my leadership journey and say, oh, I didn't know that would then contribute to this role, but it did. So having the faith and the confidence to say things will work out, pursue what's interesting and be who you are and be that well um, is really how my faith has formed my leadership. Gentleness and kindness combined with setting the world on fire might be a new potential tagline for the GHR Foundation. (laughs) 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 Um, It's so uh, uh, optimistic, um, much like you and faith-filled and your leadership there is such, and it's very forward-looking leadership um, that you model at the GHR Foundation. Can you tell us how you found your passion specifically for philanthropic work? Total accident. (laughs) Lucky accident. Um, I I think I've had three careers now, and the first was really in in academia, and I was pursuing a doctorate and teaching um, and really looking at politics and economics in East Asia. And then I worked in international trade in D.C. for quite a while. And so to be able to now be in the field of philanthropy is, is a, I feel like I'm able to bring all of those threads, again, those, those pieces that seem, might not have seemed um, to be connected to a real integrated coherence um, now working in philanthropy, and I'm coming up on my 15th year in this role. Um, so, you know, and philanthropy too, I mean, it's it's a whole other podcast, but it's not an area that really is seen as a career path when you're in college. Um, but I think it's fascinating because you really need problem solving and and those leadership skills and that ability to listen and um, integrate, you know, um, to problem solve. So so. I wasn't planning on being in this role, um, but I do find, Kim, that it has been an opportunity for me to, again, really deploy um, my strengths in in a very, very comprehensive way. I mean, I, I love the job, too, because it's it's the program side, it's the partnership side, it's overseeing the investment side, it's building an organization, there's a level of creativity and entrepreneurship there that um, that really is part of the culture at GHR. So I think philanthropy is an amazing area to work in. You can also be very authentic to your values. And in my case, my faith in how the work is carried out. Um, but again, it's a little bit of an unplanned journey. I particularly appreciated and noticed how GHR takes a partnership approach to their work. It's not just about giving the funds, but it's about serving as a thought partner and a connector to those that you're funding. And I've appreciated the conversations that we've been able to have over the years. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you just tell us a little bit more about the mission of GHR and how it's developed over time and maybe the role that you've had in helping shape uh, its focus? Well, you did a great job in the intro, Kim, of you know saying our our current tagline, which is of being in service to others, uh, to people, and their limitless potential for good. And I think the real kernel there is limitless potential. We are all children of God. We are all um, uh, part of this humanity where we every person has incredible potential. So if we, as a philanthropy, can help our partners in realizing their potential, 
um, that is uh, really the greatest impact we can have. So when I when I think about the humility side of it, it is that we are not the experts as philanthropists. We work in partnership with those on the ground who really are listening and responding and developing their expertise. We may be a repository of everything we've learned, and I think that's incredibly important to deploy that back out, but also to approach philanthropy from more of a humble learning stance, um, I think has has served us well because we just um, have worked with incredible partnerships. We also take, it's a bit of a different approach um, in that we really forge long-term partnerships and deep partnerships with several anchor organizations or institutions. And in that way, provide often um, funding or, you know, advice, technical assistance on core operations. So a lot of funding and philanthropy can be project-driven, and we really look to how can we support a core institutional organization in a very sustained way for them to achieve what is maybe, um, you know, their top strategic goal or their top need at that moment. So oftentimes the funding isn't as uh, maybe glamorous as some of it can be in philanthropy, uh, but we have found it has really served our partners well. And it helped us continue to be able to listen because if you're not listening to your partners, you can't do philanthropy well. Excellent point. And and in addition to working with your own prominent board at GHR, you yourself serve on many boards of really important and life-giving organizations, as well as prominent universities. You and I have spoken, actually commiserated, about the significant investment of time effective board service entails. Can you tell us why you make board service a priority? And what is the importance of a strong, involved, and diverse board? Uh, yes, Carrie, board service has been um, a real thread throughout uh, probably my last 20 years of work. And good governance is just core to how our institutions do their best service and promote the best leadership and good governance. I remember when I first came up, you know, sort of thought about governance or heard the word, it seemed squishy to me. It, it's it's not that it's squishy, it's big and complex, I think, to really understand good governance. So at a at a board level and being able and being having the honor of serving on boards is an opportunity to really affect the future of an, an institution that I deeply care about. So to me, board service is about a way to really assist and serve and support leadership and also to be able to bring something that day-to-day leadership doesn't have, which is that strategic vision and oversight um, that when you're in the day-to-day operations is very difficult to do at institutions. And as you've noticed, most of the boards I'm on are Catholic institutions, and I look at that and think, um, what a great, um, you know, experience at this stage in my life to be able to give back to um, places that have formed me or formed Kim with St. Thomas and Georgetown. And just, um, it's just very, it's just an incredible feeling of gratitude to be able to sit and serve on boards. I do think that with board service, 
coming in and understanding the role of a board member versus the role of someone on, you know, who's in the day-to-day operations of it is extremely important. And I also think that this focus on governance is something that, um, well, you both are, are nodding, which I know our listeners can't see, but that's because at Leadership Roundtable, you're all about governance. And it, it, make, it makes or breaks uh, an institution and its ability to serve. So, so stepping in and being able to be in a governing role has been a great way to feel like I'm contributing a lot. And, and that, that is just, that is, uh, again, a real privilege. Well, I really appreciate how you look at possibility and potential and through your service on the board and through GHR. And in 2021, you spoke at our Catholic Partnership Summit on a panel called Stewardship of Potential. Um, And during that time, you spoke about Pope Francis's vision for the church. He had just begun, he has just begun his second decade. We've all been celebrating his 10-year anniversary. Um, And you have done quite a lot of work at the Vatican and with Pope Francis directly. So to get us started on that topic, would you tell us about your favorite Pope Francis story? Can I say two? Oh, are you (laughs) pleased? So two different uh, moments. And one was the first time I really uh, met Pope Francis was in a smaller group. It was part of an interreligious dialogue um, that GHR had supported, which was a series of dialogues with religious leaders all from all over the world. And there were 30 of us in a circle. And he was wonderful to go around and say hello to each person. And then he came upon Rabbi Skorka from Argentina and a huge hug. And it was just a bear hug. And, and Rabbi Skorka was his best, one of his best friends from Argentina. Mm-hmm. And it just is, again, a like such a, it crystallized what's so powerful about Pope Francis's leadership, which is that he is all about demonstration and action. That what I was saying earlier about my parents, even that living of faith um, and, and just being in this group of religious leaders and his graciousness, his radical hospitality, and then bear hugging his best friend was <laughs> was really, really terrific to be a part of. And then the second um, Pope Francis story that um, I, I think connects to the role of of the Pope and of the church is a smaller group I was with. We were able to have a, a meeting with Pope Francis and it was more of a dialogue. And he walked into the meeting and you could tell he was very burdened. And he he started talking. There was just a handful of us about, and it was really interesting because I believe this was 2017, about Ukraine and about winter was coming. It was in October and there's, he was really talking about Crimea and, and you know, the area that the Russians had taken in 2014 and how there isn't fuel and energy and how cold, um, mm-hmm. how cold people in Ukraine are. And you could just tell this burden that he was carrying. And mm-hmm. I realized it was because he's also, he's also a, he's a leader of a nation state. And he had probably just had his briefing from the diplomatic corps of what's the, you know, what's happening in the world today, just like the president of the United States has. And so he had come from that to a, a meeting um, and you could just see he was still carrying the burden of the intelligence that he had had from his his uh, papal nuncio in the region. Um, so it's also a reminder he's a he's a faith religious leader, 
and also the leader of really the largest global institution in the world. And at that meeting, just to end on a lighter note, um, at the end of our conversation, he then uh, stood up and was handing each of us a rosary and he handed it to me first. And he said, the first shall be last. And I remember thinking, huh? <laughs> you gave it to me first so I better remember that <laughs> oh Amy we love Pope Francis stories on this podcast thank you so much for sharing both of those it's now been more than a year since Predicate Evangelium was promulgated this is Pope Francis's new constitution reforming the Roman Curia it reshapes church leadership, widens participation, sets the conditions for greater diversity, removes barriers to co-responsibility, and promotes leadership as service in the spirit of synodality. We know that you have been an important supporter of the positive managerial reforms to which Pope Francis has been committed, and we thank you for that. What positive steps have you seen taken so far? And what are your hopes now that we've had a year to begin instituting the reforms of that document? It's a really exciting time, Carrie. The um, reforms are tangible. When you're at the Vatican, you can feel it. You can feel the optimism, the excitement, the move towards a more collaborative model across the dicasteries. And so I, I just can't say enough about how this is such a moment of hope and optimism, um, ironically coming out of COVID too. I think it's, it's also dovetailing with a time where people are craving reconnection. Um, I'm seeing some very positive, tangible things coming out of this in terms of more lay leadership, clearly, more youth leadership, more of an emphasis on managerial competence, um, less clericalism. And it is just this feeling of um, the church being uh, living up to the vision also of integrating what's happening on the ground locally you know, Pope Francis and really a lot of the um, vision behind these constitutional reforms has been to push the church out into the world and to turn the church to look outward rather than inward. I don't mean the church, I mean the Vatican specifically, and to look outward and and to to really fully realize the richness of what we have with the Catholic Church, again, as the largest global institution in the world, that now the, the voices from around the world, and particularly the global South, are being brought into the Vatican in a more day-to-day um, -day operational way. So again, I was saying earlier, we don't um, necessarily support a lot of the things that are very glamorous, but I think the um, I think we should feel really reassured that this, this set of reforms is also being coupled with leaders who really care within the Vatican and who are attending to the day-to-day -day managerial pieces that are needed for reform. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. There's still a long way to go, but it is the church 
um, looking outward again to the promise of of what um, what uh, the church really can be in in individual lives and roll that up into um, uh, into the Vatican in a more um, sort of a pipeline way. When you say that it's not always the most, you know, exciting or interesting thing to be supporting um, in terms of the leadership and managerial reform, uh, we we really understand that at Leadership Roundtable, <laughs> that that's such a focus of our work, but we believe in it so much because the people in the church that are serving are so good and have such this vision to carry out the mission of the church. And if we can equip them, better equip them, then more of this good work and potential that you speak about at GHR can get done. So in your work at the Vatican and with Pope Francis that you've been sharing about, is there anything else that you want to highlight about what Pope Francis's leadership has given the church and what is the potential there that is yet to be realized? Mm. Well, Kim, drawing off the point you just made, I, I do want to be clear to say that there have always been really um, good, competent people working at the Vatican, right? And and so not to not to make it seem like oh, there's you know these winds of reform. And we know the church is, you know, it's a, a two thousand plus year old institution. And so there have always been the church at its best and the church not at its best. I, I, um, I think these reforms are possible because of the mm-hmm. church's long um, good, you know, the church at its best piece of our history of really being um, a local institution as well as a global institution. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even thinking about global development and how to get um, how to get the best outcomes for people is to connect that local voice with a global voice. Mm-hmm. And so I also look Kim out of the, out of our world today and think what other institution is best positioned to tackle the challenges we have right now? You know, just one example to go back to your question, you know, when Pope Francis came out with Laudato Si and really looked at climate change as integrated with human flourishing, with, you know, peace and conflict, people and planet, what a sea change of how the world thinks about climate change. Um, It really is about, you know, individuals' lives on the ground, as well as changing systems, whether it's within a political context or changing systems within a global framework, uh, within a humanitarian context. So that to me is a really great example of what Pope Francis's last mm-hmm. 10 years have brought to really realizing the potential of the church in these, you know, enormous challenges that we face right now and climate change is at the top. That was exquisitely said, Amy. Uh It's been a wonderful opportunity when our work intersects. For example, in the mission of the Global Solidarity Fund and FATICA, which is the consortium of Catholic foundations, or even my work with your wonderful daughter, Julia, at the Opus Prize Foundation. What are some of the benefits of philanthropic partnerships and alignments to Pope Francis's priorities of building a co-responsible synodal church? Benefits, well, first of all, thanks for a shout out to Julia. 
No, maybe I'll have her listen to the podcast. <laughs> we have to get her on the podcast. Yes, there you yes. go. <laughs> um, philanthropic capital is, it, it can be very patient capital. So, you know, there isn't a, a funding deadline necessarily. It's self-imposed within philanthropies. Um, but it can be a very patient, non-demanding way to get towards partnerships. So I think of it as patient. I also think of philanthropic capital as allowing for more risk. Mm. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, it, you can deploy a grant towards something that feels risky. Um, and you should, um, it's really the only capital out there that can take risks um, because it's not regulated like a, a loan or uh, other types of capital investments. Um, the stakeholders are the people you're making the grant to. So when you think about it as being patient and having a high risk tolerance, it should. Um, but thirdly, philanthropic capital is really visionary. It can be visionary when when philanthropic partners work with the church to vision together and to see what is what is over that horizon of where we can get to, it can be very, very powerful. So when I think about philanthropic partnerships, I think they can be, be very creative. They can be with funders. It can be with, um, you know, secular institutions. So philanthropic capital can de-risk what an investment um and uh, the private sector could come bring into it. And then the church brings in the voice on the ground, the local understanding. So there is just, I mean, Carrie, it's another podcast to think about all of the ways that um, private sector, philanthropic capital, church institutions can partner. And I know it's already happening. And, and both of you have worked quite a bit on this with Leadership Roundtable. I also think the potential there is tremendous for a lot more creativity. And we have certainly seen that the church brings in, um, it, it's a wonderful convener to bring uh, unlikely actors together. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the potential is is great there. Well, first side note, Carrie, I think Amy just signed up for another podcast. So let's put that in our <laughs> notes. <laughs> um, you, Amy, you highlight so well the importance of working together and bringing the right players to the table to strategize, to vision, and to implement together. And at Leadership Roundtable, we often talk about how we bring together a network of networks comprised of our partners and friends. It's part of how we get things done. It, and in a way, it this is a microcosm of the church at large, which is also a network of ministries, of dioceses, parishes, schools, charitable organizations, and people, right? How else is the church drawing on this network of people and resources? And what is the potential if we draw on each other's strengths and abilities as a co-responsible synodal church? The synod itself is just such great potential. And I know both of you have been so involved in that, and I'm sure it's been a topic on, you know, it's come up in most of your podcast conversations too. Uh, I think the synod and the, the process of the synod is what really matters. And so over these next few years, 
I don't I don't even think about the synod as the outcome, it's the process. And to be able to build upon this is maybe the first step in a synodal process. Maybe it's all of us getting training <laughs> on how to work in communion together, how to be in conversation together, how to have these networks connected more. Um, if the synod is a one and done, I, I don't know how much the impact will be. But if the synod is, and Pope Francis may be, you know, he's, he's a Jesuit, he's very strategic. It may be that the real, you know, the really uh, important outcome result of the synod is that we all start to learn to be in dialogue together more. And then these networks, you know, Leadership Roundtable has really role modeled how networks can be so effective. You think if you've got the global church now becoming a repository of networks and of people who know how to be in relationship with each other, mm -hmm. that just is incredibly exciting to think about. Wonderful vision. In all of your work, what is giving you the most hope right now? And where might you like to see change or progress? Well, it may seem a little ironic to start out with where I'm most hopeful coming out of uh, a global pandemic, but that's where I really have to start, Carrie. Um, I think, you know, I often in, in conversations with others, I like to stop first and say, all right, let's really talk about the last three years um, because there's a human tendency to barrel forward and not be reflective on what the world has gone through. And we all know what an experience for every person on this planet to feel fear at the same time of the same thing. I don't, it's never happened in, in my lifetime. So I think it's really important to take this moment out of COVID, out of this global experience we've all gone through and really take that and see how interconnected we are, how we have to live in solidarity. And it's human nature to not want to do that. Um, and so it actually gives me hope that we have this moment of, of the joy of being in person with someone, of the joy of working together communally on a board uh, with a partner. And we just stop and take a moment and say, this is joy to be working with my fellow human beings in a way to contribute. And that gives me a lot of hope. Because you see it in just small little ways every day in the interactions. So, again, coming out of um, something that has been incredibly traumatic, uh, I think gives us an opportunity to re-engage and reconnect in a more profound way. And I think people really are doing it. So appreciating that connection between your discussion about the synod and learning to listen to each other and to be with each other uh, and to learn. I mean, Pope Francis is even calling us to c communal discernment, which are two big ideas by themselves and then put them together. Uh, <laughs> and then, and now as we are coming together as a people uh, out coming out of at least lockdown into a new way of being something uh, really interesting and ha that has potential for incredible uh, renewal and transformation, frankly, is, is available. We have one last question uh, that we like to ask all of our guests. 
what is one action that if we all did it tomorrow, it would help build a stronger, more vibrant church? Having the courage to reimagine our church and our role in it. I think the action there is also the courage part. Because reimagining um, is, it, you know, that can be fun. That can be interesting. But right now, and I just have to tie it back again to what we were just talking about, coming out of a very traumatic experience, we need the courage again to be hopeful and to dream. And that I, I think once we start dreaming again, and again, it's it's spring, which finally is coming to Minnesota, and we're seeing these, you know, shoots come up of hope. Um, it's it's different than your average spring where you can, you know, dream. And I, I think it's courage now that we need to really reimagine what's there. That I I ask everyone to just be a little courageous, take a little risk. Excellent advice. Amy, we cannot thank you enough for being with us today and for sharing so much of yourself and what you value with our listeners. Thank you for your leadership and your time with us today. Carrie, Kim, this has been delightful and thank you so much. Um, Really, really admire what you're putting together with these podcasts. I'm a fan, so thank you. It is always a joy to host the Catholic Leaders Podcast. A special thank you to our terrific colleagues who make this podcast possible, to our eloquent and inspiring guests, and to you, our deeply appreciated listeners. We're especially grateful for the production support of Jenna McAndrew and Kate Alexander, original theme music by Rachel Taylor, and as always, the generous sponsors of Leadership Roundtable. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.